0: Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I join maritime historian Dr Stephen Davis of the University of Hong Kong as we head up to Sai Wan Hill Battery and Redoubt, both of which were built in the 1890s. A redoubt is a fortification often square in shape, and a battery is a fortified emplacement for heavy guns, so cannon for shooting shells. I learn how huge guns were hauled manually up the hill, a term called parbuckling, how far shells in those days could fire, and about the oldest geographical marker in Hong Kong, which, tragically, has no heritage status whatsoever.
1: We started to come up here when a cloud base has more or less got down to the sea's surface. So we're swimming through (laughs) claggy grey cloud, our hair misted with the cloud. It's damp.
0: Now, we're up here at uh, the Sai Wan Redoubt, so if people want to come here, how do they get here?
1: You get to Shagiwan MTR station. Do you then try and work out how to get through the labyrinth of the bus station the flyovers and eventually uh, you'll stumble past a building site and across some steps the steps go up onto the fast road from Shagiwan to chaiwan you just walk up the left hand or eastern side of that until you come to the left turn to the lei holiday camp and halfway up that road because you can't go into it unless you're a permitted person but somebody's thought about being able to get up here for the local residents for whom it's their recreation And halfway up, you'll see a little turning on the right with delicately painted pink railings. Hello Kitty has come to Shaggy Wan. And the pink railings take you up a whole bunch of steps, which take you on the road that, as far as I can work out, was put in in the 1930s when the battery here was reinvigorated. And you're then on the road and you just follow it up and eventually you get to the top of Saiwan Hill.
0: As we came up in the road, there was a couple of rings. Yeah, well,
1: those cast iron rings, you find them wherever there was coastal artillery, and we're going back to the days before trucks, when you were using mules and people, and simple mechanical purchases, which means multiple part tackles, and maybe a simple hand winch, and you'd be pulling up, let's say, a 9.2-inch gun. This was only ever six-inch guns. So big cannon? Yeah, big guns. This thing is going to weigh eight to ten tons. And you're going to be grunting this up this hill i mean we were going puff puff pant pant just (laughs) walking ourselves up now imagine dragging a 10 ton gun up utterly exhausting yeah and these guys are hauling it up bit by bit then they chalk it all off move all the tackles to the next ring up the hill pull it up to there chalk it all off move the block and tackles to the next ring up the hill and away they go and that's how they get
0: the stuff around so to bring a gun up here would have probably taken several days
1: yeah, absolutely. There's some, there, there is a couple of photographs of when they... I think I'm fairly sure it's when they dismounted the 9.2-inch guns from Pottinger Battery just on the other side of the Le Pass and where we are now to take them down to Bokhara Battery at Cape d'Aguila. I don't know how they got them into Bokhara Battery, but I know how they got them down from Pottinger Battery. They did what we maritime chaps call par-buckled them down the hill. Mm-hmm. So you've got this big gun. It weighs 28 tonnes, lying on the ground, and you passed some wire underneath the barrel, back over the top, and onto a winch. You pay out one winch and pay out the other winch, and the gun rolls inside these wires holding it. And you just lower it down the hill. And they took it from Potager Battery right the way down to the pier at Le Yumun, where it's put on a lighter, and I'm assuming towed to Bokhara Battery, where Something very equivalent was done in reverse and they power buckled it up the hill.
0: That's another new word for me, power buckling.
1: Yes, isn't it fun? <laughs>
0: yeah. If you come up to the buildings that surround I mean it's all would you say that they would surround the redoubt and it's all part of a battery or what would you class all of these buildings? No, this
1: is the wholly separate battery. I mean the interesting thing about the redoubt and the battery is that they come it's well, wonderful, it's it's military bureaucracy. You've obviously got bloggins in, in the Royal Iggy Biggy office over here. Who is thinking this? And you've got Blaggins, who's in the Gunner's office over here. And they don't, of course, they don't talk to each other. A bit like the Hong Kong government. And so one of them decides we're going to have a redoubt, and somebody else says we need a battery, and they build them, and they don't integrate them at all, as oh, far actually, as I can see.
0: I thought this was all part of. One no, no, thing. no,
1: no, no. There is two completely separate plans, and they build the redoubt. and They build the redoubt first. It, it actually gets built in 1895. Curiously, I mean you know that these are people not talking to each other because it's an incredibly antique piece of military architecture. It seems to inhere none of the lessons that the we know that the Royal Engineers have taken on board from the 1840s onwards. It it looks like something that was designed in about 1836. Meanwhile, at exactly the same time, just down the bottom of the hill, they're building Le Redoubt, which is now the Museum of Coastal Defense which is a right-on, up-to-the-date, this is what modern artillery redoubts look like. So they've got these two things being built simultaneously, which look like they're about three generations apart in military thinking.
0: That's extraordinary. Yeah. Now, what's a battery and what's a redoubt?
1: Okay, battery is a very complicated word because it stands for two things. It stands for a place where heavy guns are mounted of unknown quantity. You have a battery which acts as a coordinated unit. It also stands for a Royal Artillery Unit or Formation the size of an infantry company. Ah. And so a battery is about 100 guys. And depending on the size of the guns, a battery can be as many as six guns or it can be as few as two. Because so a big gun takes a lot of guns. mean, take a 9.2-inch gun. That takes about 12 guys to fire it.
0: So when, when you say a 9.2-inch po- gun, is that the diameter across the front?
1: It's, it's the diameter of the barrel at uh, the muzzle at the exit. Uh, and it throws a brick that weighs mm, about 150 kilograms. You wouldn't want to get hit by it.
0: No. So you, you would have this <coughs> shell or cannonball mm-hmm. in the, in the early days. It would I be a shell get, now.
1: Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're into shells. The first shells are actually cannonballs. They're just hollow and filled with stuff. And then somebody invents the, the modern gun, which is rifled, and you can't shove a cannonball down a rifled barrel. A rifled means it's, means it's got... It's got twists in it. So it makes the projectile spin. And that means that the projectile is more constant in its direction. Now somebody discovered it's basically a gyroscopic principle. So you get the the shell spinning and it's going to be more accurate.
0: Because these guns could actually sometimes bounce, couldn't
1: they? Oh, they did bounce. I mean, because another thing you've got to try and work out is how do you absorb the recoil? Uh, This is Newton. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So when you're basically exploding a massive amount of Cordite, well, it's late 19th century, gunpowder, and throwing a projectile out of a barrel. The gun is basically going to try and take itself back. There's a lovely story of a Tayo police station back in the nineteen fifties or sixties, was being visited by the divisional commander, and the guy in charge, the Marine Police were always a fairly hilarious bunch, decided he was going to greet his commander in an appropriate fashion. And there was an old cannon sitting in the Marine Police Station compound there. So they broke down some firecrackers and stuff for some gunpowder and, <laughs> and loaded the cannon with some stone and wadding so that when the divisional commander's boat came around the headland, they could fire a salute. Oh, no. But what they hadn't worked out was how to deal with the recall. They hadn't even thought about it. So the launch comes round, there's a great bang. A projectile whizzes over top of the launch and splashes into the water, uh, not so far away. Meanwhile, the cannon just shoots straight through the wall, the back, and there used to be uh, a bricked-up hole in the wall where the cannon recoiled without any check. So recoil matters.:
0: So yeah, watch for the recoil. So here up at Saiwan, you've got this battery and also the redoubt built. Simultaneously but differently?
1: Almost simultaneously differently. The redoubt was actually built first in 1895. The interesting thing is we cannot find a firm date of starting building. The best we've got is an as-built drawing from 1895, and you're not likely to do a drawing of what it looks like when it's built unless it's been built. By that time, they've also agreed to build a battery here, which is part of coastal defences. It's going to be a six-inch gun battery buddied up with some guns down in Leumon so that you've got a coverage. Meanwhile, oh, we would never thought this would happen. In 1898, we annexed the new territories. So suddenly, <laughs> we got the other side. So the whole coastal defence thinking has to be gone through So was a
0: that a bit of a surprise?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, nobody was actually expecting it. Yes, everybody wanted it, but when you're planning defences, you've got to defend what you've got rather than what you hope you're going to get. And so <laughs> all of this stuff is part of British defence thinking... Before acquiring the new territories, and as it 's being built, they acquire the new territories, and this completely recasts the whole nature of the east end of hong kong island 's defenses Why because you 're now controlling both sides of Leumon Pass once you 've got both sides, clearly you can defend the Mun narrows from both sides and one of the problems with here, from the point of view of defending the eastern approaches to Hong Kong is that mount Collinson gets in the way, so they can't see straight down. As soon as they've got the other side of Le you can look straight down the Tathong Channel to Waiglin Island, which means that your principal artillery is going to be moved. And these guns, which are six-inch guns, which in those days had a range of about eight miles, they're actually already, they've got a longer range than they can see.
0: So you're saying you've got an eight-mile range, so you could fire something off here, and where could you reach?
1: Eight miles would get you a bit beyond Waggling, or it would get you over to the Nine Pins, a bit beyond the Nine Pins.
0: So it was basically against incoming ships? Yes,
1: exactly, that, that's what it was. And, of course, this is relatively early. By 1910, beginning of the First World War, six-inch guns are able to shoot ten or eleven miles.
0: So to explain to a non-military person, once you've got the, the other side, are your guns still facing the right way? Are they still useful?
1: These guns here are not really doing any useful job. So in 1913, they're taken out of commission. So you build this, it comes into on stream in 1903 or 1904. Ten years later, they say, yeah, bad idea. We've now got the other side where we can put all our guns, we'll close this one down. And they close it down. So this this lovely piece of late 19th century military architecture is sitting here without a use. Meanwhile, they'd completed the redoubt, as I said, in 1895, And in double short order, they realized this antique piece of military architecture has got no use at all. So it just sits there, completely unused. You can see that the catchment over there, because what you're going to see when we get up to the redoubt, but you can't see this because of the trees. The redoubt in the 1930s... So this lot's all been decommissioned in the first decade and a half of the 20th century. And it sits around doing nothing until everybody has a rethink in the 1930s, can't have wasted real estate so they decide to convert the old six inch coastal defense battery into an anti-aircraft battery because we suddenly realized that aerial warfare is the thing that's happening mm. so we would better have something that's going to do something i mean anti-aircraft guns were the silliest idea that anybody has ever had if you look at second world war records of the number of shells that were thrown into the air against aircraft on all sides during the second world war only about under five percent actually found a target. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Oh God, it was, it was hopelessly accurate. <laughs> it, was, it was useless, basically. But anyway, it was all all they had to do. Then no guided missiles. You couldn't throw stones.
0: Looking across here, though, where you say, "Oh, we can't see it because of the trees." When this was built, there would have been no. Oh yeah, because
1: it was. I mean, the whole place was bare as bare as bare. Hong Kong was bare for the most part, right the way through until the 1950s, 1960s. One of the great unsung. I remember government some years back had little a little public competition thing. Name the great things that government has done. And <laughs> and, and, and then, of course, they commandeered the whole thing. They were, they're going to tell you the great things we have done. <laughs> so they commandeer this, and they list this, I think, the eight great things they've done. And the one thing that they failed altogether to mention, which is a genuine, major, major, wonderful achievement, is the greening of Hong Kong. They secured this place from being basically washed into the sea through planting nine million trees over a oh, 20-year no, period and creating this wonderful green which has actually had an effect on our microclimate. We're much wetter than we used to be because these trees generate moisture and it's, it's marvellous. Hong Kong's countryside is now beautiful whereas previously it was stark and severe. And this was because people would cut down trees for firewood or
0: just because the, the German- second
1: world war particularly it yeah, was cutting down trees that? for firewood. Well, Prior to that the basic problem was yes people had cut down trees for firewood and gradually that denudes a slope. Yeah. Then nothing can get a lodgment and so it becomes and the Greek islands everybody thinks of the Greek islands looking like they look but in fact if you go back to Solon's time When they introduced Solon. Solon, Athens, the great genius of Athens, who gave Athens its first great constitution. Back in Solon's time, when there was great pressure on land, that's when Greece got desertified, because they had goats and stuff. There was a population maximum. It put too much pressure on the land. It denuded it. And Greece has never, ever recovered. The islands have never recovered. They're effectively desertified. And the little tester for this is a plant called the asphodel. If you see the asphodel anywhere... Desertification has struck Oh
0: mm. Is there any assets for Dells here? I don't think so
1: <laughs> <laughs> But anyway You're looking across here And So when they put this back in commission They never recommissioned the Redoubt The Redoubt As far as they were concerned Was completely useless Although I As I, I'll say later They did I think find a, find a use for it Once the Second World War Had begun
0: so it was built in 1895. Do you have... that? You had then a number of soldiers who lived here. It was never manned by very many people. As far
1: as I can work out, it was never expected to have more than what was then a section of soldiers, which was 23 to 26 chaps. And so they were the garrison for the Redoubt, which is actually quite curious, because the, the, the Redoubt is actually very big. Right. It, it's It's so interesting because... It looks like it was built with the standard manual of military engineering of the 1830s in mind, except that it breaks all the rules. You've got 26 guys trying to defend a...
0: Enormous area. a linear
1: Yeah, a linear right. frontage, which is about twice as large as it should be.
0: Now, when we look over at these buildings, I mean, it's another story for another time, but the fact that, you know, many other places where you have military buildings have actually restored them to a certain extent. Of course, a lot of Hong Kong's military buildings, not much is done to actually keep them up. No, no. Um,
1: The the Hong Kong government's principle, I am as sure as I can, is let them decay till they fall down. And then we don't have a problem.
0: What's the iron coming out at the top there, sort of coming out
1: like a hook? That's really lovely. You've got the two. They're very nicely. This one's being wrecked by a tree growing over it, a banyan. They are ammunition hoists. They, they're on the original 1890s drawing of this.
0: And what's was your other word for them?
1: Well, it, I'm a sailor, so I call them a davit, D-A-V-I-T, because you, you have things shaped exactly like that for rotating ships' lifeboats out. It's a simple, strong crane, because it's forged iron. It's not cast. It's bashed in a blacksmith's shop, or a very really large one. And you can see the ring at the top there, in the little loop, and there'll be a tackle on that. So they're hoisting shells from out here, up onto the roof, taking them into those steps that wall which is there now wasn't there in the original battery that's the anti-aircraft battery of the 1930s that put that wall up and then they rush them up the steps uh to load them so they've got this constant shuttle of ready use ammunition in what were called the expense lockers around the gun and these guys are rushing backwards and forwards keeping them replenished and in the royal marines which i I'm proud to have been a member of back in the old days before 1923 it was divided into two separate sections the Royal Marine Light Infantry and the Royal Marine Artillery and the Royal Marine Artillery was sometimes known as the Buffaloes because hefting these shells around it's like permanent weight training
0: When I think of these men, you know, they would have had dysentery, malaria, all of these issues of tropical, having to work in intense heat, no Mm -hmm. air conditioning. Physically, it was hugely demanding. But also, when I think about people before trucks, any form of... Motorised
1: transport, basically mechanical assistance.
0: Yes. Yeah. I mean, it must have been a very tiring life, or were you just super strong?
1: I just think human beings... Are enormously adaptable. And if this is what normal is, yeah. that's what you do.
0: Well, we've even now got a bit of sunshine. Yes.
1: So we can get that real the real experience of being soldiers in the sultry dropping heat. So you, I mean you can see the, the building here, it's a, it's, a, it's a brick building, but it's been faced with some sort of, I think, paint. They've not gone so far as to plaster it. That's just generations of paint painted over it. You can see some residual camouflage scheme in there. And you can see how the Moisture is getting into the, into the brickwork. It's beginning to degrade. The ironwork of the windows is rotting. You've got epiphytic plants growing all over the wall. Gradually, this building is being destroyed by nature. You've got those uh, ficus chinensis, the the banyans, wall banyans growing out of the walls. Within, uh, give it another. 50 years, this building will no longer exist because nobody has cared and they have just let nature take over. There's a wonderful book written about two, ten years ago called, I think, What If We Weren't Here? And it's, <laughs> yeah. it's written by an environmentalist in a U.S. university. And he simply counts by decades after every human being magically, click of the fingers, we all disappear. How long is it before the traces of our having been here disappear? And it's, it's sort of within a few hundred years, there's not a single thing left. Nature's taken
0: over. It's quite an attractive proposition.
1: Almost is, yeah.
0: It's a beautiful wall. Uh, that will that, probably last a little bit longer, these kind of retaining wall, is it? Well, well
1: they, well, they do, but you've got a, a big banyan growing into the yeah, wall over true. there. You've got epiphytes everywhere. And gradually what they do is they start to break down the mortar. And the mortar, once that starts to break down... Then the stones start to slip. Once the stones start to slip, you've only got to get one that comes out, then you've got some heavy rain, and the next thing you know, you've got a bit of the wall just falls out. Gradually, once you've got that first piece of significant damage, the whole thing begins to fall apart.
0: So you were saying that uh, in the Second World War, this wasn't even on the map? Hey, well, it wasn't in the plans.
1: I mean, yeah. the, 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 the battery was, but the redoubt was left unmanned. And what is really, really interesting from Second World War narratives is the difference between the British attitude, leave Taiwan Redoubt, uh, ignored, not entirely, but mostly ignored, whereas the Japanese arranged for a fifth column from Wan to rush up here as the invasion of Hong Kong Island was starting and grab this, because they knew how tactically significant it was for the battle at this end of the island. If they held this, they could dominate the battlefield, and they did. So we're going up this way because what we're looking at is the original entrance to the redoubt, which disappeared when they turned the north end of the redoubt into a reservoir in the 1930s. It's gonna be very slippery, so you gotta be very careful. This was the access to the redoubt up these narrow stairs. You see, there's, there's an original railing. Oh yeah, they're covered in moss. You come up here, and this is where the pipe came, which fed Water, you see these brick butts here? It came from Mount Parker, dropped down (laughs) under the Shagiwan Road. It came from a catchment up here, and obviously the catchment was slightly higher than here, so that there was a nice siphon delivering water for the increased number of soldiers as a result of the expansion of Leumun Barracks. And so they did find a use for Saiwan Redoubt, which is to turn it into a reservoir. Now here you see, you can see a doorway. This is the original doorway. Beautiful arched doorway, which went into the redoubt from underneath. And that's what got blocked up because on the other side, there's a big water tank now. And the pipe that serviced the water tank went up over these brick pediments.
0: Oh, so we can't go up there?
1: Yeah, we can, but we we're gonna, we're gonna we can't go into it that way. We have to go around the back. But this is the original doorway. This was the entrance to the redoubt. We got two six-inch gun batteries two emplacements, which in the 1930s were converted into three-inch anti-aircraft gun batteries. Then after the war, in an interim period through until the early 1960s, they built two additional batteries along here for 3.7-inch AA guns, and these emplacements now for four 3.7s, that's what we can see remaining.
0: So we've got the emplacements. Where did the guns go?
1: Goodness knows. So for scrap, I would guess. As soon as you had the first guided missile, in some respects, all early anti-aircraft artillery was instantly redundant. You can see, you can see their mounting bolts. There's, a, there's little circles of mounting bolts. The gun sat exactly on top of that. Then there were expense lockers around. And they covered the aerial approaches to Kai in effect. And you can see the, the redoubt going up to our right. As you can see, it's, it's got this little low parapet. Interesting about the parapet, there is no crenellation. No firing loops. You're just walking along. You're, you're waist up above the parapet. The best you can do is duck down and shoot like this. Yes. And you're still your <laughs> head, head nicely revealed for someone to take a pot shot at. So it gets converted into a reservoir. Wartime comes along. And one of the things you can see in a post-war photographs is this circular area here. Now that's where I think... Something happened just before the Second World War, which is the beginning of what's nowadays called signals intelligence, SIGINT. Early days of radio, aeroplanes are using radio, radars not yet invented, but somebody thinks that by listening in on radio, you can hear incoming enemy aircraft talking to each other, you can get a direction finding bearing on them, so you know which way to look to get your early first sighting so you can get the guns lined up and shoot. We do know that on the 12th of December, sat here somewhere... 12th of December. 1941. Sat here somewhere was a Royal Air Force Signals Intelligence Unit. So,
0: during the Battle of Hong Kong. During
1: the Battle of Hong Kong. This particular outfit, they were called mobile wireless units, and they came in two colours. There was mobile wireless units, which were kosher, dealing exclusively just with helping the artillery, and there were mobile wireless units, which were the precursors of GCHQ. And what we don't know about this one is, was it a GCHQ one, a proto-GCHQ one, or was it just one that was dealing with enemy aircraft detection? GCHQ? Government Communications Headquarters. It's the NSA, it's the spooks of the communications world, of the, of the radio world. It's Britain's spies. And they always had a base in Hong Kong after the war, down in Little Taiwan. And just down the bottom of the hill, in little Saiwan, was where GCHQ had its listening post to listen to all those bogeys in communist China. And maybe before the war their proto unit had a little listening post up here. Now what we're just coming to is Saiwan Redoubt's Gem, uh, which almost everybody will walk past without seeing, and you're just about to walk past it without seeing as well. Aha. Uh-huh. Here it is. <laughs> this is the oldest survey marker stone in Hong Kong. It says BO, which means Board of Ordnance, that tells you immediately it's pre-1855 because the Board of Ordnance was, was abolished in 1855. Above it is the Fionn, the broad arrow, government property, and on top there's a figure, four. And this is boundary stone marker number four, put in to mark the bound, the fourth marker point of the boundaries of Saiwan, Barracks military property, which is on Lieutenant Collinson's 1844 map. He shows it. He also shows that it was used as a triangulation point for his topographical survey of the new British possession of Hong Kong. This has stood here for 170-plus years. This is unique. There is nothing in Hong Kong's surveying history that is anything like this age. All of the people know about lot marker stones, the ones which say wd and inland lot and all that none of those predate 1880 so this little babe is 40 years older than any of those and goes back to that very first survey you'd think in any other society in the world but hong kong run by the hong kong government they go let's tell everybody about it if you go on the web and you look for market sensor, i've only found about two or three others there's a couple in northern ireland there's one unrelated to topographical surveys in plymouth in britain and i found one in canada nobody else has got a boundary marker stone of the board of Ordnance of this antiquity and other guys here interested dream on
0: what would you like seen done a plaque put up
1: i would like to see this tree removed
0: like much granite
1: which has been quarried there are fault lines run through it which are not maybe apparent But the hydraulic pressure that a growing tree can exert is absolutely enormous we sent a detailed dossier to amo to antiquities advisory board actually saying look we think this should be immediately grade one and a fast track candidate for monument status because of its absolute rarity not merely in hong kong but throughout the world
0: So, yes, it's very interesting to see that marker and and the fact that it really, you know, goes back to the start of colonial Hong Kong. Hmm.
1: Hong Kong's fortunes at the moment, what is it? 60% of Hong Kong's stock market are property prices of one sort or another. How can you have a property system If you do not have a proper cadastral survey system that anchors your property rights claims to clearly surveyed and indisputable boundaries. And how do you get those? You have a quality topographic survey of your territory. And Major Aldrich says this when he's charged in 1841 with building the first colonial buildings. He says, look, I can't do this if we don't have a decent survey. And Bernard Collinson's bought out here, having been working with the Ordnance Survey of Ireland, his royal engineer like Aldrich, To do the survey. So he produces this fundamental survey of Hong Kong, out of which has grown this beautifully regulated world of real property, which is much of the basis of present day Hong Kong's wealth, the security of many Hong Kong citizens in their property, is all rests on quality land surveying and property surveying, and this is the
0: earliest marker
1: of that being done.
0: My thanks to maritime historian Dr Stephen Davies. Despite discovering this major historic marker and applying to both the Antiquities Advisory Board and the Antiquities and Monuments Office for Grade 1 or Monument Status for the marker in 2015, Stephen has yet to receive a response. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.